Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host and joining me for today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I am doing great. As always, we, you know, we have an election to talk about. So very always excited to do that. We do. We finally have news. We finally have actual things happening instead of people talking about what will happen in the future. So that's always good to have. Um, Yes, on today's show, we are going to talk primarily about really totally about the results of the 2022 primary elections. We basically have finality in a lot of places. Uh, Governor Kemp beat David Perdue handily. He won that race by 52 points. Just? Um, Yeah, just 52 points. An even bigger blowout than Stacey Abrams over Stacey Evans, which was also an example of a surprising blowout. But not as big of a blowout as Stacey Abrams' roaring primary win. That's true. She squeaked out a win uh, yesterday. She got 100% of the vote because she had no challenger. Yeah, and just just you know, just a little bit better than uh, Warnock's uh, over 96% of the vote. Yeah, so so at, at the top of the ticket, most of our races for the fall are set. Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams will be in a rematch for the governor's race. As um, no one could have predicted. Raphael Warnock uh, easily beat back a token challenger. He will face Herschel Walker from the Republican side. Herschel won that race easily without any real competition. I believe it was Gary Black who finished second with about 13% of the vote, but Herschel got over 60% of the vote uh, and was a clear winner in that. Um, and in most of the statewide races, uh, you're you're going to have very few runoffs. You're going to have a runoff for lieutenant governor on the Democratic side. You may have one on the Republican side, although as we're starting to record on uh, Wednesday evening here, Burt Jones has declared victory over Butch Miller um, and says that he's going to be the Republican nominee without a runoff. So we'll see how the final counting goes there. Um, do you want to note at the top of this, we are recording the day after a tragic and horrific mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, uh, as of this moment of recording 19 children and two teachers were murdered in a classroom at that school by a gunman. That's it's the second mass shooting in about 10 days. The second one that's happened since we last recorded. Um, the other one being that racist shooting at a grocery store in the Buffalo, New York area. Um, and so the, the news of this certainly, I think kind of hung over the festivities of primary celebrations last night I mean, it hangs over our politics, so we may get into that a little bit today, um, but I think worth noting at the top that that we've had yet another of one of these horrific, tragic mass shootings, and it is incumbent upon Congress, incumbent upon state policymakers to you know pass policies, pass laws that will address this, and I don't know about you, Luke, and if you want to say anything off the top, but I, I was just left totally despondent at yesterday's news, knowing that we have been through this cycle so many times. And while, you know, a lot of people have stood up bravely, have, have spoken out. Um, you know, I can think of Steve Kerr, who's the coach of the Golden State Warriors team in the NBA. He spoke out uh, demanding action from Congress before their game against Dallas last night. Since we left shoot-around, 14 children were killed 400 miles from here. And a, and a teacher... 
And in the last 10 days, we've had elderly black people killed in a supermarket in Buffalo. We've had Asian churchgoers killed in Southern California. And now we have children murdered at school. When are we gonna do something? I'm tired, I'm, I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to, to the devastated families that are out there. I'm so tired of the, excuse me, I'm sorry. I'm tired of the moments of silence. Enough. There's 50 senators right now who refuse to vote on HR 8, which is a background check rule that the House passed a couple of years ago. It's been sitting there for two years. And there's a reason they won't vote on it, to hold on to power. So I ask you, Mitch McConnell, I ask all of you senators who refuse to do anything about the violence and school shootings and supermarket shootings, I ask you, are you going to put your own desire for power ahead of the lives of our children and our elderly and our churchgoers? Because that's what it looks like. You know, Beto O'Rourke interrupted a press conference hosted by the governor of Texas today responding to this. Chris Murphy, senator from Connecticut, who uh, has been a particular advocate on this issue since the Sandy Hook shooting in Connecticut when he was a, I believe he was a member of the House then representing that district, but he's a senator for the state of Connecticut. He said that, uh, you know, focusing on mental health problems and all of that was bullshit in the wake of this and that Congress needed to act. And, and he and other people demanded a lot of action. But we've kind of heard all that before. And so, it, you know, I was left a little despondent at the prospects for any action actually taking place. At this point, I, I can only sum up this latest tragedy with what is every single headline on The Onion right now, which is, quote, no way to prevent this, end quote, says only nation where this regularly happens. So it's very frustrating that we seemingly have no political solution to something that has a policy solution uh, in this country. And I, I don't know what it's going to take for this policy to change, but I, it is very clearly untenable uh, to continue to allow this kind of massacres to happen over and over just because people want to say they protect the Second Amendment because I know plenty of responsible gun owners. I have fired an AR-15. They are fun to shoot, I understand. But all the folks that I know that own guns don't have a problem with significantly more restrictive regulations on how quickly people can get a gun, who can get a gun, safety rules around guns. And so it's just frustrating to me that even the people who are the folks that allegedly are being protected by the policy decisions that keep allowing these massacres to happen aren't against the policy prescriptions that would significantly reduce the availability of these weapons and the ease of access and the quick access to them that facilitates these types of events. And I'm, I'm very frustrated uh, by it. And I, I unfortunately think that we will be here again and we'll be here again sooner rather than later, unfortunately. 
Yeah, and I think it's worth noting, too, the thing that was on my mind as you were saying that is it's not only these horrific, truly gutting uh, instances of mass shootings and and these in particular, like Newtown, Connecticut, and in this school in Uvalde, Texas, they're they're the most painful because it is children whose lives have been snatched from them in an instant. But it's gun violence that impacts people on a daily basis, one or two people at a time. Um, and so it's it's not just instances like these that demand that Congress takes action. It's it's instances that happen every day that demands that Congress takes action, but. Unfortunately, even with a Democratic majority, uh, the U.S. Senate has not, to date, taken action to limit access to guns or increase gun safety. Um, and as of last reports that I saw this afternoon from Chuck Schumer, the Democrats' leader in the Senate, you know the prospects of them taking action in the way to, in the wake of yet another tragedy look pretty slim. So with that, let's uh, move on here to the results from the primary races. And Luke, I think the place to start is with the two most high-profile Republican primaries, that being the contest between Governor Kemp and David Perdue and the contest between primarily uh, Brad Raffensperger, the incumbent Secretary of State, and Jody Heiss, a member of Congress who left his seat to challenge Raffensperger for that Secretary of State seat. Both of these races, in some way, were defined by David Perdue and Jody Heiss running on Trump's grievance campaign about election misinformation and how the actions of Kemp and Raffensperger contributed to Trump having the 2020 presidential election stolen from him in Georgia. As we talked about before, there's no evidence for that. There's been audits. This thing's been argued in circles and circles, and and a lot of the claims from really basically all the claims from Kemp and from Heiss about this were, were bullshit from the start. And we all know that in the political press, Democrats understand this people who are not super biased Republicans understand that this has been the dynamic from the beginning. But I think the thing that was surprising to me, Luke was Republican primary voters I think delivered a very clear verdict, a crystal clear verdict in the in the Kemp race. But even the fact that they put Raffensperger through without a runoff is also a pretty clear verdict. That for them, you know, Republicans do not have to be defined by Trump's grievances over the 2020 election. And they are not supportive almost at all of candidates who would build their political identity around Trump's grievances. Why do you think that was the outcome? of uh, the Republican primary this week. I think it's because what we have talked about from the beginning is while Purdue and Heiss had Trump's grievances, Kemp and Raffensperger had Trump's policies. And so it makes it a lot easier for Kemp and Raffensperger to win in this primary because on policy, most of Trump's voters with the exception of the election, we're pretty happy with how Kemp and Raffensperger have been performing. And I think uh, in retrospect, while we gave him a lot of crap for it, and he deserves a lot of crap for it, Raffensperger, I think, clearly won this primary on the back of his campaign to eliminate non-citizen voting in Georgia, which is not a thing because it's already illegal. But he 
talked about that constantly. And every time that I saw him in the news, that is what it was about. And so when Heiss is on the trail saying, oh, you know, Raffensperger's not taking all this election fraud stuff seriously, Raffensperger could say, I passed this law to, or I helped pass, you know, the the legislation uh, to, in their words, strengthen election security, and I'm fighting to make sure non-citizens don't vote. And you know, he had a message that was difficult to square with the argument that Heiss was making. Both Kemp and uh, Raffensperger, I think, were just pretty good at deflating every argument that Purdue and Heiss brought against them because while Purdue and Heiss could say they're not doing enough, you know, Kemp and Raffensperger could say, look at this bill I passed, you know, look at this tax break you're getting, look at X, look at Y, look at Z, that they're actually doing and affecting people. And it's just, it's there's an advantage that comes with being an incumbent that you just cannot get in your ability to make news but also, and far more importantly, your ability to change and direct policy. And I, I think that since both of you know both of the incumbents here were already very conservative to begin with, it wasn't very hard for them to convince everyone that it wasn't worth taking the risk on Purdue and Heiss. Because I, I, I think... While, uh, you know, Trump has not accepted the fact that he lost in 2020, uh, there are plenty of Republican strategists and voters who have accepted the fact that, you know, maybe having wild-eyed, crazy conservative candidates isn't great for your electability prospects, and uh, maybe they were, you know, voters were worried about the ability to elect Purdue versus Abrams, since he had already lost statewide very recently, and the Heist had never won statewide, and you know Democrats are making a a very concerted effort to take these offices. So you know I, I think a combination of those two factors of you know the electability concerns and just you know frankly probably being pretty happy with how Kemp and Raffensperger has han- have handled their jobs uh, make it easy than I expected for Raffensperger, especially Kemp did about how I thought he would based off the past couple weeks. But I really thought Raffensperger was going to have to go to a runoff. Um, but I, I'm very pleasantly surprised to see that he will not. It looks like he's won this thing outright. Yeah, I think the other thing that looms large in the minds of Republican primary voters is how much of a debacle the 2020 into 2021 Senate runoffs were. And that really all of the mess around election misinformation and Trump's grievances is what turned a lot of people off to David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. And I think Republicans have rallied their base, you know, through negative campaigning based on criticism of the Biden administration, the Biden agenda, Stacey Abrams role in that or what her role would be if she becomes governor of the state. And so I think they are sensitive to the fact, Republican primary voters are sensitive to the fact that this election misinformation bullshit is not a winning strategy for them. And like you said, they have candidates in their incumbents that are conservative enough and that they had no problem supporting. So I think it, you know, I've heard a few different, especially from national podcasts about what the takeaway is about a somewhat mixed message of Trump's influence on the Republican Party. 
And I think to me, the, the, the tightest verdict delivered by Republican primary voters is that they are not on board for Trump's grievances. And it, it, you know, is not really a commentary about being more moderate versus more conservative. Everybody in these races was all, you know, way more conservative than kind of your middle of the road Georgia voter. The other thing I think that raises Luke is that these definitive verdicts kind of mean that Republicans are not facing a crisis of how to unify their party going into November, that defeating Stacey Abrams, defeating Democrats is a very uniting force for them. And, um, you know, there may be a few fringe Trump people that, that don't get on board, but largely this Republican electorate is ready to shift their focus to November um, and beat Stacey Abrams. And to me, at least, they seem in pretty good position to do it. I was te- I was texting some of my friends today, and it's interesting the range of reactions that folks have had because I've definitely been on the more pessimistic side for Democrats that I don't I don't see a clear path to victory after these results because what I think is very evident in Kemp and Raffensperger holding off the Republicans is two things one. They are incredibly organized and they have a lot of people supporting them and behinding them behind them and want them to succeed. And to the <clears throat> Trump backlash is not the primary animating force of the Republican electorate. I'm not going to pretend like I know what is, but whatever it is, it's not just Trump grievance. And so I really doubt that there's going to be a significant amount of voters who are going to say, well, oh, Brian Kemp didn't support Trump two years ago in the fake election fraud thing, so I guess I'm going to stay home. Like, no, I, th- I think these election re- results show me that mm, the, a lot of people will come around and come to vote against Abrams and Warnock and everybody else just to be on the Republican bandwagon, regardless of how they feel about what Kemp did in 2020. And uh, I just don't see Democrats really mustering the same energy behind them. And it's always dangerous to read into the tea leaves of one election to predict, you know, to predict a different one. But I mean, there's a pretty significant gap between the turnout in the Republican primary and the Democratic primary. I think it's 400,000 votes. Is that yeah, right? It's, yeah, it's about 400,000 votes. It's going to change because we're still races. counting. Count every vote, but still, yeah, roughly around there. Um, and I think there's a good amount of that because I uh, that I can, I know from personal experience and talking to people, there's a lot of Democrats who voted in the Republican primary to to save Brad Raffensperger specifically and, and to prevent some other uh, wackos from winning. So that that is definitely a dynamic. So I'm not going to say that entire gap is explained by that, but at least a part of it is. Um, and I, I, I just think it's going to be a rough cycle because the national environment is so incredibly bad. I think most Georgia voters have a neutral to vaguely positive impression of Brian Kemp and how he's been as governor. And I think Abrams is having trouble finding a message that resonates as much as it backfires because every time I feel like she makes a stronger pitch and attack, it 
is equally negative on her as it is on Kemp, and that's not the kind of jujitsu that successful campaigns are made out of. And really, if I had to put money on it now, I would I would say that Warnock is the only Democrat that has a chance to win statewide in Georgia. And unfortunately, I'm skeptical of how certain that is. I still think he will win just because Herschel Walker is, is such a poor candidate despite his crushing primary win that, you know, that was on the back of his days as a running back and his name recognition and the lack of popularity and name recognition of all of his opponents. I, I, th- I that's, that is a brew, I think, that does not favor Democrats whatsoever. Yeah, and I, I want to come back to Warnock and Walker. That's a, a matchup that we know is going to happen. But to get at something that you alluded to, Luke, uh, the message that from Stacey Abrams that made news over the weekend and leading up into the primary election that was much criticized by Republicans was a clip of Stacey Abrams at a Gwinnett County Democrats uh, dinner speaking to an audience and saying that Georgia was the worst place to live, that she was tired of hearing Georgia being the number one state to do business when it was, quote, the worst place to live. Now, she immediately, right after she said those words, worst place to live, said, people are going to take me out of context, so let me explain. And then she listed off uh, metrics demonstrating that Georgia ranks among the worst of states on issues like maternal mortality, access to mental health care, incarceration, wages, and that the point that she was making was that, and I, I think she's used different words in other contexts since then, but the point that she was making, I think, is that policies enacted by Republicans, which have been focused on business gro- business growth over people's own ability to thrive, have left people in worse circumstances and that if she were governor, she would reverse those policies and she would govern on behalf of people and their ability to thrive and not on what would make Georgia the most likely state to uh, win a business ranking competition from an industrial magazine, which is what is always being referenced. Site selection magazine is what is always being referenced in this number one state to do business thing. But as you alluded to, Luke, she said the words, Georgia is the worst place to live. And then Republicans took her out of context and said, Stacey Abrams doesn't like living here. And if Stacey Abrams doesn't like living here, maybe she should go back to where she came from. And, uh, you know, don't you love living in Georgia? Don't you think that this is the best place to live in the country? And to me, the misstep there, and I should say that since then, Abrams has walked back that particular description, she described it as an inelegant delivery, but that her points, which are entirely valid on the terrible rankings of Georgia on a ton of these measures of people's personal ability to thrive, that that point still stands. And so I think the sort of messaging pitfall there is that she sort of knowingly uttered this phrase that's going to get taken out of context, that's going to get put into ads that plays right into the Republican message of Stacey Abrams caring more about herself and more about her desire to run for president more so than she does about the people of Georgia 
more so than she does about the problems that people are experiencing here. And that, you know, the Republicans are not going to apologize for taking that out of context because it's going to be in a bunch of videos and mailers and everything all the way up until election day. I think that raises for me, Luke, I feel like we've been down this road before, but um, what do you think an effective message? Well, let me, let me, let me tee it up this way. Governor Kemp in his acceptance speech laid out pretty clearly and this has been consistent with his prior message about Stacey Abrams, made out pretty clearly what his case against Stacey Abrams was going to be. It's that Kemp defended lives and livelihoods during the pandemic, and that if Abrams had been governor, we would have longer lockdowns, we would have uh, Georgians staying in their homes instead of going back to work, that we would have students staying in front of a screen instead of going back to school, and that Abrams would champion government mandates on vaccines and masks instead of leaving personal health choices up to you and your family. And that beyond COVID, Stacey Abrams would wait, raise your taxes, put her woke politics into your lesson plans in your classrooms, and support defunding the police. You know, a lot of those criticisms are not fair, but they have, you know, Kemp's message has been pretty tight and focused on Stacey Abrams. When Abrams is facing that kind of message, how do you think she can effectively combat that loop? Well, the first thing I would suggest that she do is if she has the thought that I'm about to say something that I will then need to say the words, I know this is going to be taken out of context. Don't say that thing. Because if you know it's going to get taken out of context, don't say it. It's very easy. The, the next thing I would say is she needs to stop fighting on the Democratic turf. And what do I mean by that? If you are a voter who is likely to vote for Stacey Abrams, you know what Stacey Abrams stands for. I, I imagine you could find any Democratic voter who just voted in this primary and ask them, what does Stacey Abrams want to do? She wants to expand Medicaid. She wants to put more money in schools. She wants a government that fights for workers. We all know that. She needs to stop talking about that as much, and she needs to attack Kemp on his strengths. Campaigns that are successful, I think there's two things they do really well. They have fun, and they criticize their opponents on their strengths. I think the most infamous example of this is Jeb Bush. Republican, his main issue was education, which is usually a Democratic issue, but Jeb Bush became the education guy, and from that he was very, very successful as a politician. Please clap. Please clap. But... You know, rip, rip Jeb. <laughs> hope you're hope you're better. You know, I hope you're having a better time in politics, heaven. But you well, know, I did see his presidential run aside. Um, very did, successful in Florida. The first thing I saw about the results uh, was that old meme that took me back to simpler times. It had uh, Purdue zero, Kemp zero, Jeb a hundred. Of and course, his, his arms outstretched over yes. the state of Georgia. Yes, because Jeb wins every election. But anyway. Um, Jeb, except the ones he's actually in. <laughs> yeah, Jeb memes aside, when they're you know they're glorious. The point remains that, and you know, similarly, Obama in twelve, uh, I think, very effectively attacked Romney on the economy and made the economy his big issue. I think Abrams should make her main issue freedom, because Kemp is a libertarian-minded Republican who, if he could do absolutely nothing as governor philosophically he thinks that's the right move that like he should do almost nothing and the governor should be a figurehead 
that, you know, encourages businesses to come to Georgia, that signs bills that make doing things in Georgia easier for businesses, but, and everything else get out of the way. And I think the, the thing that she's trying to say with the Georgia is the worst state to live in comment is that in Georgia, you don't have freedom because you don't have the normal assurances that you should have as an American that you will get a job that will pay you well, that you will not die in a hospital giving birth, that you will be able to make plan, you know, make family planning decisions, that you won't get shot by someone with a gun who, you know, an 18-year-old can buy an AR-15 but can't buy a beer. You know, that is the type of freedom that Abrams is trying to encourage in the state of Georgia. But from continuing to focus on messages that work only with Democratic voters, I think it makes it a lot harder to land any blows against Kemp. And and to be fair to Abrams and her strategy, I think she doesn't think she needs to do that. I think she thinks that she needs to energize every single Democratic voter and that if she's able to successfully turn out everyone who voted for Joe Biden and John Ossoff and Warnock, in 2020 and 2021 that she wins and she may be right (laughs) but in this environment what i would worry about is that she is going to not be able to do that because the national environment is so depressing for democrats right now because i just think about all these issues the past couple shows i feel like on abortion on guns on i'm sure something else will come up in the next couple weeks while democrats hold their butts are in the chairs they don't have the power that comes along with those positions and so there's all these problems that democrats can't solve and i think it's just going to be very depressing as a democrat i'm very depressed when i think about politics and i think there's going to be people who don't vote because of that and she does not need to water her message down she does not need to become republican light that's not what i'm saying at all what i'm saying is she needs to she needs to express her message in a way that will be effective without explanation and to be unimpeachable in her talking points. And so by adopting a line of argument that feels good, because as a Democrat, it's, you know, I'm sure for some folks, I don't like it this kind of way, but, you know, to say, yeah, Brian Kemp's our governor and we're in the worst state in the entire United States and look at all these stats, they're terrible. And, you know, like that feels good in the moment, but it isn't as encouraging, um, at least to me, when that is the message because it sort of puts you in a downer. <laughs> and especially when coming off the heels of a bunch of Democrats who got elected on the argument, elect me and I will fix everything and everything isn't fixed. And then Abrams is saying, elect me and I'll fix everything. Yeah, you know, I, I just feel like there's going to be a point where you hit voter skepticism on on those points, and I, I'm I'm worried that's that's the route that we're going. I think the criticism of her message that I agree with is there doesn't seem to be an overarching theme that really encapsulates the contrast between her and Governor Kemp. Um, you know, her, the sort of hashtag version of her campaign is one Georgia. And I, I don't, you know, without explanation, it's, it's hard to know exactly what that means. Um, also a problem. You know, I, 
I think what she's trying to say there is that in some ways, I guess she's trying to recreate some of the Biden, uh, you know, the Biden approach in saying that in reality, large majorities of Georgians have sort of one set of values and that Brian Kemp, like Donald Trump before him, is an affront to those values, you know, but that to me in, in, in some ways seems kind of vague that the freedom notion that you raised, Luke, I, I think it echoes something that I heard from a Democratic strategist named Anat Shankar Osario on the Ezra Klein podcast, where I think she raised the concept of freedom and Democrats trying to recapture the word freedom and they're on messaging to say that uh, parents and students should be free and in and, and teachers and local schools should be free from government interference about what is taught in their schools. Um, you could certainly apply that freedom lens to the ability of people to make their own personal health decisions, particularly on reproductive health and in access to abortion. You know, it, it there is sort of like, an opportunity there to try to stitch multiple things together into an, a memorable theme that creates a stronger contrast between these two. And I think you're also headed for a, a campaign that is actually largely going to be organized around really divisive social issues of uh, abortion and guns. And in the statement last night from Lauren Grawarga, the campaign manager for, for Stacey Abrams' campaign, the statement leads with Brian Kemp is a failed governor who's disqualified himself from his second term. He disqualified himself when he pushed a criminal carry bill that puts more guns in our streets and makes us less safe. He disqualified himself when he supported a total ban on abortion with a penalty of 10 years in prison. Her campaign, I think, is going to lean into those issues because they are animating to the Democratic base. At the same time, those issues are very animating to a Republican base. And I just, I'm sort of lost at like a theme that could tie together more than just the most divisive issues in this campaign, but would give license to moderates and, and uh, people who've recently switched from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party to vote for Abrams and to be excited to vote for her, to do work to get out the vote for her. I think that's the sort of tough messaging thing to crack right now. But it's hard because it is, you know, given the events of the last three, four weeks, it's hard for a statewide campaign to ignore or try to uh, fold into a broader theme the issues of abortion or guns, given that the life and death consequences on those two issues has become not, I mean, it, it's been evident for a long time, but it is particularly evident and visible in these moments. Um, and so I don't know, I, I think it's a tough nut to crack. I, I think, you know, you're also sort of at the whims of what the national trends are for Democrats and the Democratic Party, which is not good right now. And so finding something that sort of overcomes those trends and encapsulates a message that can win you 50% plus one, I think that's the challenge. And I don't know that I have good advice. I don't, it, it's tough. Yeah, and you know, while I have given a suggestion of what her messaging should be, I I don't have all the polls that she has. <laughs> I don't have the, all the advisors she has. So may, maybe there's something to what she's doing. Um, but I just think in this environment, a positive but contrasting message 
is really important because I just feel like the Democratic electorate is so demoralized right now. And the way that Kemp has fended off Purdue, and just by the fact that he got challenged by Purdue, makes Kemp look a lot more moderate just because of the fact he had someone to his right who was so extreme. I think the ability to win over some of the swingier Georgia voters is is important because, again, my fundamental assumption is the fact that Democratic turnout is going to be a little lower and a little bit depressed about how things have been going. And so while Georgia is inelastic, I haven't changed my opinion on that. I think the, you know, the party's bases are pretty locked in and it's a lot of it is turnout, but I, I think there's a limit to what you can do with that. And I, I think Kemp has the ability to win back some of the Romney Clinton slash Biden voters that, you know, a different Republican wouldn't be able to just because of his general likability and his fact that he's just come off this race against Purdue and he looks like a victor against Trump and he's a more reasonable Republican and Raffensperger has that same argument. I, I, I just think that's a really fraught and difficult political position um, for Abrams to be in. I think we should probably move on unless you have something specific. Yeah, let, let's move on and talk about the Warnock, uh, Reverend Warnock, Herschel Walker matchup that is coming. Um, Luke, there, no contest really in the primaries on either of these. Notable that Herschel Walker had such a large victory, even though he, for the most part, declined to really participate in the primary process the way that a traditional candidate would. Um, instead, he was elected largely on name ID and the fact that he was a you know former famous Georgia running back. Luke, I think the interesting thing is what that means for the general election because you saw Republicans, particularly Gary Black, significantly ramp up criticism of Herschel Walker. Uh, Gary Black said that he would not vote for Herschel Walker in the general. We'll see how solid that commitment is, but he was willing to say it in a way that even David Perdue said that he would vote for Brian Kemp if Kemp won that primary. Um, and then there were even more uh, stories about Herschel's behavior and Herschel's past, including a recent story that uh, basically said he was the spokesperson of a group that uh, mistreated and defrauded veterans while ostensibly trying to help them. Um, and so he has had negative stories tied to his treatment of veterans, tied to his treatment of women, including uh, his um, a woman he was married to at the time that he, he had abusive behavior. He uh, has questions about uh, other parts of his business dealings and how honest he has been in his business dealings. And he's dealt with... Uh, serious mental health issues that by themselves should not be disqualifying, but that may be contributors to a lot of other behavior that uh, does make him look like he is not fit to be in the Senate. And the main thing that kind of came out of that Republican primary was the inability of Herschel's Republican opponents to have those problems stick to Herschel in a way that would make Republican voters think twice about voting for him. And so Reverend Warnock has a whole lot of runway 
to re-air all of these things to a wider audience and basically run a campaign to entirely discredit Herschel. What's on your mind as that race kicks off? Uh, I I think you've covered it, which is Herschel Walker has a lot of really deep negatives on a lot of spectrum, but so did Donald Trump. And I think the really overriding question is what will matter more to Georgia voters? Will it matter more that Herschel Walker has an R next to his name? Or will it matter more who is qualified to be a senator? Because for some voters, I don't think they care if Herschel Walker does anything except walk into the Senate and vote the way that Republicans need to vote and walks out. And for some voters, that's all they want out of a senator. Whereas other voters care more about someone representing the state and the federal government in a more holistic way of running constituent services of, you know, not saying stupid things and not, you know, being, being uneducated on the issues, which, uh, frankly, if you've ever heard Herschel Walker talk on the issues, it's quite clear that he is not taking the time to, to read up on issues, to form opinions on issues. Pretty much every answer I've ever heard him say, well, I don't want to say anything on that because I need to look into it. Well, the time to look into it is when you're running for senator. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that, that is the time to, to do that, or preferably significantly before. And, um, I, and as an example, that was his response to questions about what should be done about access to guns that he was asked at his victory party hours after this tragic shooting. And then as I was editing the show, I came across this clip of Herschel trying to clarify his stance. And this is what Herschel said on Fox News after he had had time to think about his response and time enough to book a TV interview to clarify his standing on what needs to be done about gun safety. See, that is the person wielding that weapon, you know, Cain, Kia, Abel, you know, and, uh, you know, and that's the problem that we have. And I said, what we need to do is look into how we can stop those things. You know, he talked about doing a disinformation. What about getting a department that can look at young men that's looking at uh, women that's looking at uh, just social media? What about doing that, looking into things like that? And we can stop that that way. But yet they want to just continue to talk about taking away your constitutional rights. And and I, I think there's more things we need to look into. This has been happening for years. And the way we stop it, by putting money into the mental health field, by putting money into uh, other departments rather than departments that want to take away your rights. Right. And so, unfortunately, I, I think Walker has a decent chance of winning this election just because of the fact that too many Georgia voters, all they care about is they are by the name. If he can walk into that Senate chamber and say I when he needs to and say nay when he doesn't, then that's all they need. And I, I'm I'm hopeful that there will be a significant amount of crossover vote for Warnock just because of the fact that consistently in polls, people find him very likable. He has stayed campaigning constantly. I see his ads constantly. I see him in the state constantly. He seems to be engaged from what I've heard from um, some uh, friends is that his office is one of the best as far as constituent constituent services and that if you need something done from the federal government, his is the one to call. 
Uh, so he, uh, Warnock is doing all the right things. And I think this comes back to what I was saying about Kemp and Raffensperger. It is just a huge advantage to be the incumbent. And I would feel a lot more concerned about this race if Warnock and Walker were in an open seat election and Isaacson was retiring um, instead of having resigned earlier and having this opportunity for Warnock to be in the seat and to be the incumbent. I think that is a tremendous advantage for him and that these negatives about Walker have not been fully exploited yet because I think... It's always difficult for Republicans to to go as hard against a fellow Republican, I think, in a way that um, is just not true when it's a D versus R race. The the gloves will be firmly off, and I, I think there, there will be a lot more than we've even heard so far come out about Walker. Um, and the you know, I don't know if voters will care or not, but I, I hope they do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Maybe the best hope for Democrats in that race is that Herschel Walker becomes viewed in the same lens as somebody like Roy Moore, who, even in a much more conservative electorate over in Alabama, those voters agreed that he was disqualified because of his own personal conduct, that he was not qualified to be a senator for the state of Alabama. Now they turned around and they put Tommy Tupperville in that seat after Doug Jones briefly held it. Um but the other thing, Luke, is, you know, Walker, well, I wanted to say to something you said earlier, like Gary Black actually did not hold back. But I think the problem that Gary Black had is that he's a such a low profile figure, even as a statewide office holder, such a low profile figure. And Republican primary voters showed so little interest in the negatives around Herschel that it was just difficult to get any kind of traction. But Herschel but Raphael Warnock has so much money and is so good at driving a message that I think it will, it will create greater public focus on the negatives around Herschel Walker. Um, but the other thing, Luke, I don't, I'm going to see if you stand by what you told me at lunch today, Herschel Walker basically did not participate in the primary process. He didn't show up at debates and forums. He didn't participate the way a traditional candidate should, is he going to continue with that strategy and try to avoid accountability and avoid focus on his own behavior and his own positions and just say, oh, Warnock and the Democrats are bad? Is he going to continue that strategy? And is there any chance that that's a successful way for him to run this race? Uh, I am, if anything, stubborn and consistent. So yes, I will stand by my statement that I don't think Walker will do any debates or any other public appearances if he can. And the reason why is because if you never show up to be your questions by a reporter, they can never ask you, what about your allegations of X? What about, you know, all of the litany of things you ran through. If you are never in front of a reporter, they can never ask you the question and it can never be played on the nightly news of you fumbling through a terrible answer to that because, Again, every time I have ever seen Walker answer a question, it has been the worst answer to a question I've ever seen. Um, and I, I'm not being hyperbolic. I literally mean that. Like, this is the worst answer I've ever seen on a question that should be a layup. Um, and so if I was him, I would honestly just stay in my house in Texas and hope that because I have an R by my name and I am the nominee, that people give me money so that my consultants can 
put me in an ad where I'm wearing a football uniform or running across the field and say, you know, some voiceovers happening. And then I just say, I endorse this message <laughs> and like, hope you win that way. Because I honestly think it's actually more risky for him to do a normal campaign where he is constantly in front of people because he's just not very good at that. And I think that that <clears throat> is kind of a dead end strategy to his campaign. If he, if he really embraces that kind of approach in part, because it's going to contrast pretty heavily with Brian Kemp, who, you know, for well, and Warnock, who's everywhere, both Kemp and Warnock are everywhere. Yeah. I mean, you know, a bunch of the other high profile candidates, they're going to be fighting with each other. They're going to be, making their case to voters and some of what I heard from, you know, Republicans in advance of that primary is that their hesitation about voting for Walker is that he just didn't do anything to earn their vote. He didn't, you know, talk about issues. He didn't address the negatives in his background. He just felt he was above the entire process and that was disrespectful to them personally as voters. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think there's limited utility to that strategy. I think if we see polls that say Brian Kemp is up on Stacey Abrams by seven, but Warnock is up on Herschel Walker by four, you know, some sort of big split like that, then I think they're going to be forced to change course. Um, but even then, I think the best you can hope for, given Herschel Walker's approach so far, is that Herschel Walker looks much more like a Kelly Leffler type candidate with a narrow tightly focused set of talking points he'll call uh it's hard when both their last names start with a w i'm gonna mix warnock and walker up that's why all, i just always say herschel walker season. Raphael warnock um, or senator warnock you know uh herschel is gonna sound like kelly leffler saying a oh, warnock's a radical liberal socialist who's gonna you know, who doesn't agree with your values and is going to ruin the state of Georgia. And like, there's never going to be any substance to it. There's never going to be uh, much there there because he does at least to this point, he has not really demonstrated uh, that he's got the ability to, to drive a message effectively in the way that Raphael Warnock does and the way that Brian Kemp does. Um, so it's going to stand out compared to other candidates. Uh, let's wrap up here with some other takeaways in Georgia's 7th Congressional District to the Democratic primary there. Uh, Lucy McBath easily defeated Carolyn Bordeaux. Um, you know, one theme that kind of popped up across several of these races, including uh, Herschel Walker's approach, Lucy McBath's approach, and then Kwanzaa Hall's approach in the Democratic Lieutenant Governor's race. And we can talk about that a little here in a minute. Um, was that all three of these candidates were willing to not show up to debates, not show up to forums, not make public appearances, and largely want run on their existing base of support in their name and their fame. And for Herschel Walker, it worked out fine. For Lucy McBath, it worked out fine. She defeated Carolyn Bordeaux easily um, on the back of a lot of advertising and a more progressive district that uh, probably felt more aligned with Lucy McBath than they did Carolyn Bordeaux. Any thoughts on that outcome? I think the difference there is the power of incumbency. And while Lucy McBath did not go to the forums like I think she should have, she did show up to the debate. And I think she has a lot more of a substantive background to 
have campaigned on and a compelling policy driven story. And, you know, while her candidacy, <laughs> I'm making the Abrams mistake of saying something that I feel like I need to caveat immediately before or after. So but maybe it's like you shouldn't her, say it. <laughs> well, I shouldn't, but it is still kind of true that she is a celebrity candidate in the sense that she has a compelling story and was known before being a politician. Um, and so I, I don't mean that negatively. Uh, I just that she has a very compelling story and she has you know, made a big issue of those things. And I mean, this is, goes back to what we were talking about next, last week, which was that her theory of the case is that, like, I am going to be a fierce advocate for issues that Democratic voters care about, and that is why you should elect me. Um, and so, I mean, frankly, going to every little forum on in, you know, that your district is not strictly necessary to be a good advocate for issues that democratic voters care about um while i would think you should do that and that it would be preferable preferable if you did I, I i don't see it as much of a uh ignoring the district on the scale that walker is doing here and it, it just seems more of like a different it seems more strategic in a positive way than walker's abdication of campaigning well, and to give Lisa McBath credit, she won easily. Right. <laughs> she won easily in a district that Carolyn Bordeaux currently represents most of. So Yeah, and, and I think to also be fair to her, and this was incredibly evident in the debate, is that Carolyn Bordeaux knew her district better. And she should, because it was her district, effectively, that McBath was taking over. And I think strategically speaking, in a similar way to Walker, her showing up to those things were just opportunities for her to... Uh, her her campaign and I I think it is worth noting that you know that that is why I am so strong in thinking that Walker is going to continue his strategy like McBath's victory is evidence of why that strategy can sometimes be a good idea he's taking it to a far far greater extreme than McBath did but if you don't show up to things you can't mess up and so if you don't show up to a Gwinnett forum, you will not have clips of Carolyn Bordeaux knowing more things about Gwinnett than you do. Uh, Democratic Lieutenant Governor contest. That is one that is going to go into a runoff. Uh, currently, Kwanzaa Hall uh, is Former the Congressman Contro Kwanzaa Hall. For, he was a congressman for like a hot minute, right? Yeah, he, he is technically the person who replaced John Lewis. Uh, for the very, very short amount of time that was left in his term when uh, Congressman John Lewis unfortunately passed away before uh, now Congresswoman Nakima Williams took the seat. But there's that strange occurrence where there were two elections at the same time, and he he won the short one. Well, Kwanzaa Hall, he was the leading vote-getter in the Democratic lieutenant governor's primary. He got 30% of the vote, or about 200,000 votes. Uh, it I'm not sure that these results are entirely finalized yet, but according to the Secretary of State's website as we record, Charlie Bailey is in second with 17.6% of the vote, 120,000 votes. And in third is Renita Shannon with 14% of the vote or about uh, 20,000 votes fewer than Charlie Bailey has. That is a race that's going to go into a runoff. And so once that's finalized, it's going to be Kwanzaa Hall versus either Charlie Bailey 
who I believe is probably going to be in that runoff or Renita Shannon is the next closest person. Um, Luke, <laughs> what the, what the hell happened here? Like, well, can you, you know, tell me something intelligent about this race? <laughs> I will. Um, so I, I want to start with, I love the fact that I've just made bold proclamations this entire show. Uh, and one of my bold proclamations earlier was that like the only people you should care about in uh, the Lieutenant Governor's race was uh, Eric Allen, who did incredibly terrible. Sorry, Eric. Uh, you know, friend of the show has been on many times. Um, Charlie Bailey or Renega Shannon. And uh, Kwanzaa Hall was not on my radar at all. And I think this is one of the few negatives of not living in Atlanta is that sometimes you just miss things like this. And Kwanzaa Hall is very well known in Atlanta in the sense that he was a city council member. He did. He was briefly the congressman and I mean, he's good at raising money and he was on TV and, and then people recognize the name. And I, I think that helps a lot when it is a race where you just if you're your average voter who's not obsessed with this stuff, but you still want to do your civic duty and you try to pay attention, I mean, you walk into that ballot and you see the lieutenant governor and you're just like, oh my God, what do I do? <laughs> and so, you know, I imagine there's plenty of people who are like, oh yeah, I kind of know Kwanzaa Hall. I've, you know, seen him on the news or, you know, got a mailer from him or <laughs> remember when he was my congressman <laughs> briefly. Uh, and, you know, you vote for him. And I mean, to be fair, as far as, uh, time in office and government experience. I mean, he has more than I think everybody else out on there because Eric Allen had been in the legislature that long. I don't think Renega Shannon had been either. Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, uh, but yeah. Kwanzaa uh, Hall's website says he's been in, ele in elected office for 15 years. Right. And I'm, I'm almost certain nobody else who ran could say that. I don't think anyone else had a decade. So, I mean, to be fair, I mean, he has a lot of government experience. And, and so I, I think, um, you know, shame on us for sleeping on Kwanzaa Hall, our potential future lieutenant governor. True shame on us because Kwanzaa Hall's website says, most recently Kwanzaa Hall served as the U.S. representative from the 5th District, completing the late Congressman John Lewis's term. Although he only served 33 days, many historians have said this period has proven to be one of the most consequential periods in U.S. history. <laughs> so, so he's not wrong. <laughs> apologies on us for not getting that one, guys. Uh, <laughs> we'll do better. We'll do better. Um, but, you know, I, the thing that I think was interesting to me was sure Kwanzaa Hall is known in you know, probably well-known in Atlanta and the fifth congressional district. But if you look at the kind of County results for uh, his race, it wasn't just like the counties inside the perimeter where uh, he did well. So it, it was a large swath of the Metro Atlanta area, um, the, the core counties closest to the city of Atlanta, but also most of the counties South of Atlanta down towards Macon he also had support down in the Savannah area. Um, and that, you know, sort of stood in contrast to, I think the only other sort of very clear base of support looking at a county map is up in the North Georgia mountains and more rural parts of the state where Charlie Bailey uh, was successful. Um, is that Luke enough for Kwanzaa Hall to kind of be the favorite in the runoff, do you think, or is the fact that he kind of flew under the radar and then suddenly showed up at the top, is that going to invite more 
scrutiny that might change the dynamic of this race. Well, one reason I think we should point out that we say he's flying under the radar is because he didn't show up to the debates either. It, it seems like there's a trend of us talking about a bunch of people who don't show up to things. Well, and the um, thing that breaks my heart about that is that Eric Allen, and full disclosure, I voted for Eric, Eric Allen's question to Kwanzaa Hall the podium, a, the empty podium was about Hall. him not showing up to things. And he delivered the question to Kwanzaa Hall's empty podium. And the one place Kwanzaa Hall showed up in this campaign is at the very top of the results at the end of the day. So, you know, credit to him, I guess. Yeah. So, I, you know, the, I think the logical question to ask now is all the people that didn't vote for Kwanzaa Hall, do they go to Charlie Bailey? Do they show up at all? I think it'll be incredibly interesting to watch this race now because if Bailey is able to come back and win, then it suggests that he was able to build a, a pretty significant network to overcome what seems to be Kwanzaa Hall's inherent advantages, whatever they are and whatever, um, you know, reason why he, he did so well that we missed. Um, and I, I assume it can't just be name recognition, but maybe it is. Look at Herschel Walker. Um, I mean, he's a congressman in one of the most consequential periods in U.S. history. That's like, right. How can you fight against that? I haven't that? been. So, you know, it's like we're, we're, we're being a little tongue-in-cheek here, but it's like I, ha- I have not been a congressman for 33 days. You know, so it's like he has that on me. He gets that health care. I don't. Um, these are important things and important issues. But... Um, hopefully he will be more visible after this. And, um, I would love to know what he actually wants to do <laughs> as Lieutenant governor. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully we'll see. <laughs> do, you, do you though? Because I'm, as we talked about last time, that's a terrible job that has no power. So, well, maybe that's what he wants <laughs> because that's what being a Congress person for 33 days is. Hugely, maybe he's perfect for Lieutenant governor. <laughs> maybe. Hugely he comes in with a very realistic idea of what the job will be like. <laughs> you know, credit to him. The other one of the other little things to pop up in this was the uh, impact of Democrats crossing over and voting in the Republican primary. Um, that number before election day, I believe, was in the tens of thousands. I think it was like between ten and twenty thousand Democrats that voted. Um, cross party lines to vote in the Republican primary. And I should say that the technical description of that is people who pulled a democratic ballot in 18 or 20 who pulled a Republican ballot this time, you don't actually know that they are Democrats, but that's the general assumption there. The outcome of that Luke might've had two things as it relates to the secretary of state's race. It might've actually kept Raffensperger out of a runoff and it might have forced Democrat B win into a runoff. Um, uh, as of this recording, B. Wynn has 44% of the vote. Because she is under 50, she would uh, go into a runoff with D. Dawkins Hagler, who is currently in second place in the results with uh, about 19% of the vote. Um, what What do you think about the possible impact that crossover voting had? I wouldn't be surprised if your hypothesis is correct uh, that, you know, the, the crossover was at least a fact, a significant factor in the fact that Raffensperger was able to get out without a runoff and that B wing is going to have to go into one. I also find it one as, as further evidence of that, the person I heard talking most about Democrats shouldn't be crossing over and should be voting in their own primaries was B win. Yeah. And you know, uh, we, we both have, 
I've, you've met B, right? Yeah. Talk to her. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we both know, know B and like B and I vote for B. I'm sure you vote for B. And we, you know, the, the, so I am now I'm going to move to the criticism, <laughs> criticism part of this, but it's like, I find so hilarious that, you know, CNN put out this article a couple days before like, Oh, B is the future of the party, which I mean, she is, but Democrats have to, and this is not, this is not specifically to B, but it is, B is a victim of this phenomenon. Democrats have this horrible track record in Georgia of picking anointed candidates on these lower level races, basically everything from governor down and then failing to help them win because I know Americans love our free gum and don't want anyone to tell us what to do. But like objectively speaking, the voters could use some more guidance when they have all of these races. As I've explained before, I don't think voters are dumb. I think voters are very busy. And to the extent that as a party, as an institution, we need to do better in helping voters weed out crappy candidates because there's so many candidates where I feel like the establishment choice of people who Democratic elected leaders, Democratic activists, people in nonprofits aligned with Democratic causes, like there is a clear person every cycle that this is the person we think is the most qualified to do this job, who probably has the best chance to win statewide. And of course, they can be wrong about that, but a lot of times they're on to something with the people that they would suggest. And I think those campaigns are just routinely fail to build up the organization fast enough to be successful in a May primary because a lot of times it's candidates who are running for statewide offices that want to finish out their term in the state house, which means they can't raise money or do anything until the um, session gets out. And that is just such a shackle on campaigns to be successful that it is so hard for a lot of the establishment candidates that you and I probably voted for that would probably do really well in these positions if they won and would probably be really good campaigners if they had runway, they have to try to build an organization in two or three months where there's other folks who are game to campaign during session, raise money during session, and it's just hard to overcome that as a state house elected because, I mean, that is where our bench is. And I find it really frustrating that every primary cycle, we have situations like this where B, who unquestionably has put the most time and thought and energy into what our next Secretary of State should be doing, is not getting to run against Brad Raffensperger, but is running against someone else who's run statewide before and not been successful and is doing it at least in a, less seriously from my perspective. And that, that is frustrating to me um, on so many levels because there's a, a clear better choice. And we so often not take it because I think voters are have not, had an op, have not had 
the opportunity to actually learn about these candidates because there's nothing out there on there. It is so hard to learn about all these different candidates and to, you have to seek it out. You have to want to know. And I, I think there's something, I don't know what, but there's something that Democrats have to do to be better at this. Well, I, I take as valid the, you know, elevating the people off the bench who you want to put into higher roles that that, you know, I think the Democratic Party as an apparatus is probably a little torn between not wanting to take sides in primaries and wanting to elevate the candidates that I guess I would categorize them as the candidates who people active on Democratic Georgia politics, Twitter, know and like the most. So in this cycle, this would have been um, Charlie Bailey, who was really kind of elevated as the establishment candidate of choice for Democrats by him leaving the attorney general's race and instead going over to lieutenant governor. He's the one I would put in that from lieutenant governor, B. Wynn and secretary of state, Matthew Wilson in the insurance commissioner race, somebody in the house who's been really outspoken and, and really is an effective lawmaker and effective messenger, but who not only did he not, win the insurance commissioner primary, but that's a race that's going to go to a runoff and it's, he's not even in the runoff. And so I think for, you know, the, the democratic caucus, I'm thinking particularly in the house, because that's where it feels like a lot of these sort of rising star members come from. Um, you know, I think it is worth kind of considering, how you elevate those people and, and give them the resources that they need to be effective in winning these races. Um, but, you know, for the other candidates who are not the sort of anointed favorite sons and daughters of Georgia politics, Twitter, they would say, you know, we campaigned and we won these races. The woman who is leading the insurance commissioner race currently, Janice Laws Robinson, she was the nominee in 2018 and she nearly won that race last time. And then she's come back and gotten the nomination. Also being the party favorite. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and, and she's come back and she's leading the primary and seems poised to get the nomination after the runoff again. And so those candidates would say, like, don't anoint the people who are good at Twitter and instead, like, pay attention to election results. But I, I think it's just notable that, like, the people that stand out to you and I as close observers, the people in the legislature that stand out really have struggled quite a bit to win statewide races or even when they do to win primaries. And even when they do to appear as dominant as someone like Stacey Abrams has been electorally in like somebody like B Win, who's gotten a lot of national attention, who's done good work. It does seem like, you know, it would have benefited Democrats for her to demonstrate a lot of strength in dispatching with the rest of that field. Um, and she wasn't able to do it. And I think there's really two really, really big failures here. The first one is Matthew Wilson's not a state rep anymore. He's not the nominee anymore. He's gone. And I think that's a loss because he was doing really great work and he would have been a good nominee. That's one side of it. And I think the consequence of that is that if I was a state house rep and the party asked me to run for a position, I would not want to do it <laughs> because the chances of being unsuccessful are so incredibly high. And if you are, you know, a couple term state rep rising through the ranks, 
I would be so much more hesitant because of the fact that it seems so unlikely that you're going to win one of these down ballot offices. And, you know, it's quite clear from this cycle, not everybody is Jen Jurgen who, you know, candidates and the party can both, you know, agree. It's like, yeah, you're probably going to win this and you're really good at this and we should move on to different pursuits. Um, not everyone's going to get that benefit. And so that's, that's one side. The other side is to, obviously, if the anointed candidates or the Twitter anointed candidates, as you say, aren't winning, then there's something that the, you know, the Janice Laws Robinsons of the world are doing right. And the fact that the party will almost 100% completely ignore her as they ignore most candidates running for office is a very big problem, I think, and that there really needs to be more of a coordinated effort to really talk with these candidates who win these nominations unexpectedly and see what they were doing right because they're doing something right. I, I refuse to believe that it's just chance that, you know, this, these kinds of things happen. Um, especially when it's someone who's not the first name on the ballot <laughs> or it's not someone named Sandra Bullock. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a lot more skeptical that it is just, wild luck that someone who's on the middle of a ballot of a long list of people, you know, gets significantly more votes than everyone else in a fluke. Like I, I, I just refuse to believe that. So these folks have to be doing something right. Well, to Janice Laws Robinson's credit, although she was not a member of Congress in one of the most consequential periods of American history, she did when the pursuit of excellence pace setter and nationwide life insurance awards and she was ranked among the 10 best agents for life insurance and the 25 best agents for car and home insurance. Uh, she was ranked that way by somebody. I don't know. I'm reading her bio on her website. Um, so maybe it was the Associated Press poll. I don't know. Um, but, you know, jo jokes aside, like maybe that is the good right experience for someone in, in this race. You know, having the experience of actually selling insurance Maybe there's something compelling about that. Uh, I mean, she won, so that that's compelling. Or, well, she she to be clear, she has to go into runoff this time. But uh, the fact that she was the nominee last time and uh, leads this race by a lot, I think, suggests that she's going to win a runoff. Yeah. Um, lastly, here, uh, Nabila Islam, friend of the podcast, she has declared victory in the. Uh, seventh state Senate district primary. She was in a primary between her and Beth Moore. Beth Moore is currently a member of the house and, and was moving over to try to win a state, state Senate seat. Uh, so Nabila has claimed victory. She leads by 78 votes, according to the secretary of state's tally as we record. Um, and she said that Beth Moore has not conceded, um, you know, notable, one, because she's a friend of the pod, we like Nabila, and, and congrats to her if, if she's ultimately victorious here. Um, but speaking of uh, candidates anointed by Democratic politics Twitter, uh, Nabila played a little bit rough in this race in a way that was somewhat offensive to uh, people on Twitter. Um, you know, politics is a rough and tumble sport. I don't I don't necessarily... Every winner has a streak of meanness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, you, that was one of the few instances I can think of. The only other one I can think of is a 
race between two Democratic incumbent state House members, Shelley Hutchinson and Rebecca Mitchell, who were drawn into a district, and Shelley Hutchinson won that one. Um, you know, the two notable, interesting legislative uh, results that that I can think of. Any any other results or anything else to throw out there before we go? No, I just added Senator to the front of uh, Nabila's name in my phone, so oh. <laughs> feels appropriate. Um, oh, I, I have one last one, which is uh, <laughs> this one's just hilarious. <laughs> Bonnie Rich, she was the Republican chair of the redistricting committee in the House. Um, so she effectively got to draw a House district for herself. Um, as the chair of that committee, she was defeated <laughs> in her own self-drawn district by David Clark, who is a notorious endless thorn in the side of Speaker Ralston and who I think most Republicans don't like. <laughs> but Bonnie Rich lost. <laughs> yeah, poor Bonnie. I shouldn't be so mean. In her I own mean, drawn it, it district. It is kind of like, hilarious. <laughs> gerrymander a little better next time. Come on. Well, she won't be able to because she lost. I know. I hope she's like a, a fair districts reform advocate. Going that would be forward. incredible. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Uh, well, I think that that's all we've got for you all today. Um, you know, obviously, these races, we're going to sprint towards the general now. So uh, I guess that'll be fun. Um, but we'll leave it there. Oh, it'll be fun. Georgia's the most fun state in the union. What are you talking about? Oh, man, I'm, I'm exhausted already. Um, but we will leave it there. We will be back with more coverage soon. Luke, thank you, as always, for joining the podcast. Go dogs. Go dogs. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.